Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. And I'm Howie Foreman. We're physicians and professors at Yale University. We're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This is a very special episode of the podcast. We're excited to welcome our nation's Surgeon General today. Dr. Vivek Murthy is the 19th and 21st Surgeon General of the United States, appointed by and serving under Presidents Obama and Biden. In this role, Dr. Morthy has informed the public on myriad health topics from the e-cigarette epidemic among youth to the dangers of health misinformation, forging a name for himself as a champion of prevention and holistic well-being. Most recently, Dr. Morthy and the Office of the Surgeon General released an advisory on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation, followed by an advisory on social media and youth mental health. Dr. Morthy is also the New York Times bestselling author of Together, the power of connection in a sometimes lonely world. Dr. Morthy holds a BA from Harvard College from 1997, as well as an MD and MBA from Yale School of Medicine and the Yale School of Management in 2003, which is when Harlan and I first had the privilege of meeting him. He completed his internal medicine residency at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I want to start off, you know, Everybody talks about the Surgeon General. I want to understand what is it that the Surgeon General does and how do you decide what priorities uh, there are to tackle? Well, thanks, Howie and Harlan, and for having me on uh, your podcast. And congratulations also just on the growth of the podcast and just how many people it's reaching these days. It's uh, been more than wonderful to see. Uh, the, the Surgeon General is, uh, I'd say it's an office that is known and recognized by people across the country, but many people don't know what the Surgeon General's job actually is. So it turns out that it, there are two primary responsibilities of the Surgeon General. The first is what is more commonly known in the public, which is to provide the general public with information about critical health issues so people can make good decisions for themselves and for their families. But the other responsibility is to oversee the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. This is one of the eight uniformed services in the U.S. government. People may be familiar with the Army and the Navy and the Air Force. The U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps is a service that's dedicated to health, and it comprises around 6,000 nurses, doctors, physical therapists, pharmacists, public health engineers, and other health and medical and public health professionals who we deploy during times of emergency. So, for example, when there's a hurricane or a tornado or when 9-11 happened or during the past few years when we had the, the COVID pandemic and during Ebola a few years ago, during all those instances, we deployed hundreds of officers to help communities to stand up medical treatment centers to assist in the public health apparatus. So that is a public health service. And during the in-between emergencies, our officers are helping and working in federal agencies to strengthen and address public health issues across the country. So that's a job of the Surgeon General. And in terms of how we decide what issues we take on, uh, you know, every Surgeon General is different. And in my case, you know, I've had the uh, privilege of, of serving in two different environments. And I'll tell you that for me, there are a few factors that go into de deciding our topics. One is, are there critical challenges facing the country right now? When I came in this time, there was COVID-19, which we were in the throes of, and that became a very important focus for, for me and for our office. But the other thing that I use to guide me is also the conversations I have with people around the country. And I try to listen closely to what they're talking about, what's worrying them, what's on their mind. And that's often led me to focus on issues that are different than I may have otherwise 
chosen. So, for example, when I was uh, when I was serving the first time, I had in my confirmation hearing talked about uh, the issues I would tackle, and they included tobacco-related disease, obesity, and others. But what I did not necessarily talk about as much was the addiction crisis and the opioid crisis, but it was through conversations I had with people across the country that I realized that needs to really move up much higher on our priority list. And we made it a priority issuing the first Surgeon General's report on addiction and leading a campaign uh, among uh, prescribers to change prescribing practices. This time around, I will say that in addition to, to COVID, our big focus has been on mental health and well-being. This is a topic that's been very important to me personally, not just in my own life having struggled with mental health, but as a doctor having cared for many patients over the years who were really having mental health struggles. Even I'm an internist, I'm not a psychiatrist, but even though I was seeing patients primarily for pneumonias or for other infections or for uh, cardiac complications, you know, after a procedure, whatever it might be, it turned out there was often mental illness that was in the background that was affecting their lives. It was affecting their care. Uh, and it was, it was those experiences, along with the many conversations I was having with people across America, especially kids and parents, that led me to see that mental health is not only a crisis, but it was an accelerating crisis in our country. The pandemic poured fuel on that fire, and that's what ultimately led us to prioritize mental health and well-being. You know, you're, you're a wonderful and eloquent champion for Americans' health. I mean, I, I, I feel so fortunate that, that you're in this position and, and you came in experienced. I mean, you know, I think that also put you in a position where you could think, you know, how can I make impact? And, and you didn't have a learning curve. You were ready to go. And, and you're focusing on these important areas. No doubt that the, the pandemic has added to an already difficult challenge and crisis around mental health in this country. Mm-hmm. I think I wanted to ask you in terms of your outlook, you know, I think about health in this nation. I, I, I have this nagging feeling that we're, we're losing the battle. You know, li- it, life expects even before the pandemic, multimorbidity is up. Obesity continues to increase. Mental health challenges continue to plague us. Addictions. I mean, it becomes almost overwhelming to think, how do we begin to turn the tide? I mean, and it's important that you're having the focus on a particular area of of great importance, in particular, also bringing in your expertise on on loneliness and social connectivity mm-hmm. and so forth. But but when you you know when you go to sleep at night, you look at the ceiling, you think like, how am I going to make the biggest impact? Are there opportunities to truly turn this tide? Because the nation, in many ways, is going in the wrong direction. Even as we're spending year in year out more and more money on healthcare, the returns in terms of the health of Americans doesn't doesn't seem to be manifesting. How, how are you thinking about that? No, Harlan, you're, you're exactly right. And I think that this crisis that we find ourselves in more broadly, the broader healthcare crisis, we could spend all, all this entire conversation talking about what's driving it. But I think one of the key things that's become clear is that we have not focused nearly as much on the drivers of the crisis as we have on trying to expand treatment to take care of the consequences of the crisis. And this is familiar to both of you and to I think anyone who's listening to this podcast who's worked in healthcare. They know that our predominant focus has always been on treatment. And look, it's for that reason that we have some of the most cutting edge treatments in the world. I would love for those to be affordable and accessible to everyone, which they're not currently. But I do think that we are struggling with a lack of focus on prevention, and we just can't keep up. If you think about the various 
contributors here. We have a population that is experiencing a dramatically high level of stress, right, for, for various reasons that we can talk about. We have an increasingly lonely and isolated population, which we now understand has profound effects both on anxiety, depression, and suicide, but also on increasing the risk for cardiovascular disease, for dementia, for premature death. We have a food system that essentially does not take into account the fact that a lot of health is driven by the food you eat. Yet we have a pretty large percentage, a staggeringly large percentage of our diet that is made up of ultra-processed or highly processed foods. And then you look at physical activity as well and sleep, the two other components which are really vital to contributing to our health. You know, as time has gone on, the research only continues to build, pointing to how important sleep is for our overall physical health as well as our mental health. And I think that the physical activity we also have come to learn more and more is not only helpful for physical health, but it actually has an important effect on our mental health and well-being as well. So I think of these as critical pillars sleep, activity, nutrition, social connection. And when we are engaged in healthy behaviors in those four dimensions, we can do a lot to reduce the incidence of disease. But we are, we've historically moved in the opposite direction, you know, to a society where people are less and less active, where foods are more and more processed, and where sleep is something that we have traditionally looked at as something that's a luxury. I mean, think about our medical training, right? I, I remember it was a badge of pride to, to be able to not just do a, you know, do a 24-hour or 48-hour call, but then to to just say, yep, I didn't get any sleep, I didn't need any sleep, and uh, yet here I am powering Bra- through. Brag about it. Brag about yeah, it. there's almost a sense of pride in not needing to sleep. And so yeah. that is not just in medicine, though, right? That, that sort of pervades society, that notion that I'll sleep when I die, uh, which people used to say all the time. I think that betrays, I think, a, a lack of understanding of how powerful sleep is. So all that just to say, I think if we truly want to either bend the curve on healthcare costs or ultimately improve healthcare outcomes, and most importantly, improve people's quality of life and their fulfillment, we have to dramatically increase our focus on prevention. And that's one of the places where our off- reasons our office is focused so much on social connection, on increasingly we're doing more and more on stress and why we're focusing on mental health more broadly because the prevention piece matters and it drives a whole lot in our life, not just physical and mental health, but our overall fulfillment uh, and enjoyment. And I'll lastly say this, look, I worry that when I talk to people in our country, uh, especially kids and parents, that there are more and more people who are just feeling beaten down and burned out. And it's not always just because they're facing long hours at work, but it's because they find themselves in an information environment where it feels like they're constantly hearing about everything that's broken about the world. Uh, they find that the stresses of, of, the, of life that they're incurring, whether they're economic stresses or health stresses, they're often trying to deal with them on their own, you know, as it feels like increasingly everyone's out there for themselves. This is what people tell us, you know, all the time. And I think part of what we have to do is not only increase a focus on these elements of prevention, we have to actually think about the culture, you know, that we build in our country around health uh, and recognize that that being a culture where, where we recognize just how powerfully our life is influenced, uh, you know, or health is influenced rather by these different dimensions of our life is going to be critical. Because if you do that, then you start to, you can imagine a world where workplaces start to ask themselves, not only how can we generate better output from our workers, but how can we support the health of our workers, recognizing that that impacts their output and their well-being, where schools are thinking about the same. How can we improve and support the health and well-being 
of our students, not just as an afterthought, an eighth priority, but really as a core of what we do, recognizing that's going to be key to their educational attainment and their fulfillment. The, the Office of the Surgeon General has had an enormous impact on, on health in this country, changing public opinion. You go back to the tobacco reports in the mid-1960s, see Everett Koop speaking about HIV AIDS in the 1980s. Um, your report on vaping and e-cigarette use, uh, I think, was uh, prescient and was happened just around the time that the public awareness started to pick up, and, and I think it led to positive change. But there's also so many examples, as you've just mentioned even, uh, you, you spoke about eight years ago, I think, about walkable communities. Uh, you just mentioned now about our diet. There are things that just seem almost like Sisyphean, like almost impossible to move the needle. And I'm not somebody who ever wants to give up hope. Your classmate, Dawn Sherling, was just on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about the same issues you talk about with processed food. Give us some hope about like, how do we move the needle? How do we all, how does Harlan, how do I, how do our listeners engage to try to move the needle in a direction that gets us some positive effect? Yeah, it's such a good question, Howie. And I think you're right to ask because without hope, I don't think we can make progress on this journey. People need to feel that there's a reason to make the effort to live a different life or that it, it matters to advocate for better policy solutions. Well, here's why I why I actually feel hopeful about this. I think about certain areas where we have actually been able to move the needle. I think about mental health, for example. There was a time when I was growing up where you just didn't talk about mental health. Well, you know, help was like hard to get. It wasn't clear if insurance was actually going to even pay for your care. We have moved, fast forward a few decades, now to a place where, while there still is stigma around mental health, it is much easier to talk about. It's also, while there's still challenges to getting care, we now have uh, in the last two years alone, funded uh, through the administration and with Congress, uh, efforts to bring thousands and thousands more counselors into schools. We are now working on uh, enabling Medicaid to actually pay for mental health care in schools. We have put more money into training mental health providers, and we are using telemedicine more, technology more effectively to actually bring care to where people are as opposed to expecting them to drive 30 miles uh, to an appointment. That is all real progress. And and I do believe that it's progress that has, has saved lives. There's clearly a lot more to do, but that progress is what gives me hope. I think when I think about other areas, I even just take sleep. I actually do think the culture around sleep is starting to shift. You know, I see it talked about differently in medical training circles now, and even among business leaders, where there's a recognition that, hey, as a CEO, you don't have to prove that you're only sleeping three or four hours a night and see more and more people encouraging uh, their workers to get sleep. So this change can happen, but in order for it to happen, a couple things have to occur. Number one, there's got to be leadership by example. There's got to be people who are stepping up to live a different kind of life and shining a light on that. The second is there's got to be accurate and, and compelling information that you communicate to people about this. I think what's been hard about food, Howie, is that food has been one of the most vexing, confusing areas of lifestyle for people. Like the simple question, what should I eat, feels like for so many people that it's that answer to that has changed so many times over the years that sometimes people just throw their hands up and say, gosh, I don't know what to eat. So I do think clarity of, of information there uh, is, is really important. But I'll lastly say this, one of our challenges, I think, in medicine and in science has been getting information out to people, right? There are things that we know, but we're not always able to effectively communicate. And that's like one of the, the reasons that it, I believe that the work of our office is, um, you know, is especially important and why it's important that our, we actually 
do everything we can to do our job well, because even though it's not all on us, I know to contribute, you know, to communicate everything about all aspects of health to the country. Um, I do think we need more of our colleagues, you know, in, in medicine and in public health to be out there with clear, actionable messages for people on what they can do. And then working on the policy and structural side to make those choices possible. Like if, if we tell people, look, these are the foods that are healthy to eat, like low processed foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, et cetera, but then they can't get them in their neighborhood or their right. workplace cafeteria doesn't have healthy mm -hmm. food. That makes it a lot harder to implement. Our financial incentives seem to almost drive the worst behavior. You know, I wanted to ask you, Vivek, you know, we've had the privilege of knowing each other for a while, and I've watched with admiration that the leadership that you've shown along the way, but you've also have this humility about you and, and also talking about the sort of journey your family's made. There's this wonderful picture I saw, maybe it was around the time that you had become Surgeon General this time, that you were surrounded by members of your family. I think your mother was there in sort of traditional attire. I don't know, was that your grandmother? Yes, yeah. or it, it was like, it, it, it's the most wonderful picture, but I wonder if you could just share with, with listeners a little bit about the journey of your family, how they came to come to the US and, and, and just give us a little bit of a flavor about that because I think the story is really inspiring the kind of path you've been on. I mean, you became Surgeon General of the United States and, and yet, you know, it, through an, an immigrant family, I mean, it's just as a, it's re remarkable. I don't know if you could just share a little bit about that. Uh, Harlan, you're, you're so kind to ask. And um, I'll tell you about my family, but I'll also tell you that part of my journey has been made possible because of mentors and mentors like both of you. You know, like Howie has really been, you know, just such a special mentor and uh, probably the most important mentor in my life, you know, who has um, been there for me ever since I was a student, stayed in touch, reached out, has helped me just at every turn. Um, and you, Harlan, I remember coming to medical school and working with Carrie Gross on my uh, on my my thesis. And I, when I, I, you know, we looked at you as a, you know, and continued to as just an iconic teacher and researcher uh, and leader in medicine. And I remember the first paper that Carrie and I published on our research. You were a co-author on that paper. And I remember the day, the moment I found out that you were going to be a co-author, and I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like we're I get to co-author oh, this paper with this this like the I, that, that paper is one of the most ci highly cited papers. Uh, it's Carrie's most you, cited paper. We pointed had you gone out. in a different direction, you would have been an extraordinary uh, in, in research. Well, that's, but you're, that's you're very kind. No, but I've been. I, I say all this to say that look, I've a lot of times like we focus our stories and society on the individual and what they achieve, but. Um, the, Arnold Schwarzenegger has this thing where he always, often says, he's like, you can call me all kinds of names, anything you want, but don't call me a self-made man because there are a lot of people who helped me along the way. And I feel the same way with, with my family. I mean, that, that's where I really got lucky. You know, I, I, my parents grew up in India. They immigrated to the United States when I was three. I grew up in Miami, Florida and my parents, you know, they, they could have stayed in India. My dad, finished medical school there. He could have set up shop and done quite fine. But they came to America because they hoped that here in America, they would find a place uh, where their kids were not judged by their caste, as my parents often were in India, or judged by the color of their skin or the fact that they had a funny sounding name. They wanted their kids to grow up in a place where we would be judged by our ideas, by our willingness to work hard, by our commitment to the people around us. And, you know, sure, we, you know, encountered our share of challenges growing up, including racism and discrimination. 
But by and large, we were so blessed to find teachers and neighbors and others who supported us to to have opportunities to go uh, to schools that opened up our our minds and taught us great things and allowed me to serve, you know, as a doctor down the line. Um, I had many moments where I wasn't sure, you know, where my path would take me and how he knows this well, but many moments where um, I just felt lost, you know, including in medical school, later in medical training, after medical training. Um, but I was blessed to have a family that, despite all the uncertainty and twists and turns I took and what often felt like three steps back, um, they always were there to support me and they believed in me. And so I, I count myself extraordinarily grateful for that. And I, I don't, I will never forget, though, that this would perhaps never have been possible in most other countries, right? I remember being sworn in uh, by then Vice President Biden uh, in front of my family and and many other friends, you know, the first time I served as Surgeon General. And I remember looking at my mother and my father and my grandmother in her wheelchair and my sister and brother-in-law thinking about the journey that my parents had been on, um, thinking about all the moments where they had been told that it would be too hard to come to the United States, or times they'd been told that they didn't have what it took to succeed here, or that their kids could only go so far. And I thought about how they persevered in those moments. I thought about how my grandfather, who was a freedom fighter in India, who fought against British rule and was jailed uh, during the freedom fights uh, in India, I thought about the fact that he was a poor farmer in a small village in India. And to think that his grandson would one day be asked by the president to look out for the health of an entire country, that is a journey that can happen in very few places. And I'm grateful to have had that journey take place here in the United States. That's incredible. It's a great story. It it allows me to pivot to a much lighter topic, Hmm. which is you've got a jackfruit tree in the back of your parents' home, (laughs) and you are also a self-described mango aficionado. And I want you to tell us a little about that. Oh, my gosh. My parents, they, they, they have loved their new home in America over the last 40 plus years. But one thing they, they try to do is they try to recreate India in the backyard. And their version of doing that was to plant all the fruit trees uh, that they enjoyed growing up. So we have <laughs> 10 varieties of mangoes that grow in our backyard in Miami. We have six varieties of jackfruit. Uh, we have pineapples, we have lychees, we have bananas, we have coconuts, we have all kinds of things crazy. that grow in the yard. So during the, the fruit season when our kids, you know, we all go to visit, like they'll just roam around the yard, pick fruit, eat it, you know, while they're walking through the yard. It's just a, it's a very idyllic existence. But yeah, I grew up eating mangoes in particular. And um, I'm, I will admit I'm not proud of this, but I'm probably admittedly a bit of a mango snob. So I, I realize that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. I showed him I showed him my mangoes from Costco and he thought they were okay. I mean, <laughs> that's right, Howie. It's, it's very hard for me to eat mangoes from stores because I'm so used to like these high quality mangoes straight off the trees that are just so so sweet. So it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I, I I think we both are so deeply appreciative, I, and I know the role that in the relationship that you have with Howie. It's very special, and it's uh, you know he's done this for so many people. But to to see the way that you guys have resonated over the years, and and have this uh, uh, ability to help each other, and uh, 
and you know a strong friendship as well as a, the mentor relationship it's really just wonderful okay, it's not, I appreciate my, that. It's not my funeral yet so we can put that aside for now no we will but i'll um, look i'll just say that how we even though i mentioned this about you as a mentor i i do think that one of the things i think that could be most powerful that people do uh in their lives to help not only their health and well-being but to help address the health crisis awareness a country actually has to do with their relationships with other people. You know, we often don't think about our relationships as as powerful or as a lever that can actually improve health. But the reason that we issued a recent Surgeon General's advisory on loneliness and, and connection was because it turns out that the effects really are profound, that people who are lonely and isolated, their mental health and their physical health are worse off. And the flip is that when we can help build connection in people's lives, we can do so much to help improve their health, but also their sense of well-being and optimism. And the way to do that doesn't always have to be complicated. I know that a lot, a lot of us are leading busy lives. We don't have a lot of time. But sometimes a simple act of reaching out to a friend just to see how they're doing or to check in on them, simply picking up the phone when your friends or family members call, even if you don't have time, but just to say, hey, I'm tied up right now. I'm walking into a meeting, but it's good to hear your voice. Is it okay if I call you back later? Making it a priority to to build, as I think of it, people-centered lives, uh, where we put our people first, we put the engagements with our friends and family, whether it's dinners with them or birthdays or going to their weddings or showing up when they're sick, where we put that first and try to build the rest of our lives around it. It's not always possible, but whenever we can do it, those small moments of connection, they go such a long way to not only helping us feel better, but to helping others be, others feel and know that they're not alone in a world that feels like it's moving increasingly fast and leaving people behind. I, um, I was fascinated by the fact that, that from the earliest years, you've been willing to talk about your own personal experiences, even when they're, um, even when for other people, they'd be stigmatizing. And you've talked about loneliness. You've talked about what it was like as a child in school, uh, being an immigrant child in a public school in, in the Miami area. But now you have, in addition to that, you have a, a growing family. You have two beautiful children and Alice at home. And I'm wondering, you know, when you wrote the social media and youth, I think, op-ed in the Washington Post, or it was one of those writings, you actually brought them into the conversation. You said, I hope that I will do this with my kids. That's my intention. I'm wondering how much your own children have already changed you in the way you view the world and how much they inform your own thinking about what the future holds for all of us. Well, Howie, I mean, I think it's it's very hard to be a parent and not to not have your kids change how you see the world and what you see is important. And that's been true for me, too. And I think many of the issues that perhaps I thought were important before have taken on an even greater sense of urgency after I have my kids. Like, I think I take mental health in particular. Um, you know, I, I struggled a lot as a child with my mental health. And these days, as I watch my kids... You know, I see some of the same tendencies in my son that I had, and not all good qualities, but certain like, so I, I worry about some of the, um, you know, sort of tendencies he, he may have toward anxiety or toward depression. And it, it may, you know, and he, again, he may grow up to be totally fine, but it just reminds me that if my child is ever to struggle in the future, my son or my daughter, I want to know that there will be help for them. I want them to know, to feel comfortable asking for that help. And I want them to be able to grow up 
in a community where people don't cast them aside because they make one mistake, where they actually help them up if they stumble and fall down, uh, a society that's actually forgiving and nurturing rather than one that's condemning uh, and isolating. And the truth is, Howie, I've realized that as much as I'm a you know, perhaps as my wife might say, overprotective parent. Um, like I'm not always going to be there, you know, around my kids and whether or not they lead that kind of life or not is dependent on the society they grow up in. And that's why I feel a sense of urgency around this work as well, because for my kids, for all of our kids, they're going to depend on each other. Uh, they're going to depend on the norms that we have in society, the kind of culture that we build uh, around community and around support. Um, and there is this notion, I think, I think it's actually not accurate, but I think some people believe that America is a nation built entirely on rugged individualism. But it wasn't one person who fought the Civil War and won it or who built the entire civil rights movement. There are heroes we celebrate, uh, certainly who played an outsized role. Um, but there are millions of people who made those things happen. And so here, too, I think the work, our work around social connection community is in part, I, I believe, an effort to push us as a country to re-examine our identity and our history, to understand that to build a future we want, we have to do it together. We have to strengthen our foundation, which is our connection with one another. We talk a lot in healthcare about the safety net, right? To me, one of the most powerful safety nets we have is the social safety net. It's our connections with one another. And that's what I worry about. But my kids, they, they serve as reminders to me of of what truly matters. And, and the reason I've shared, you know, my personal story about them and about my own experiences growing up, et cetera, Howie, is not only because I hope that it will encourage other people to share, and I, because I believe a culture of openness about this is critical to reducing stigma, but also just honestly, Howie, on a personal note, like I just got tired of walking around with a mask. And so many of us have, you know, walk around with a mask feeling like we have to hide parts of who we are for fear of condemnation or judgment from others. And I've certainly spent many parts of my, much of my life in that situation. But I just got to a point where I was like, it was just exhausting to do that, you know? And I just finally got to a point where I was like, you know, I just want to be who I am. And whether that has good or bad consequences, it just feels a lot easier and a lot less stressful uh, just to be honest about who I am and my journey. Uh, than to try to be someone that I'm not. And that might mean that, you know, there are some consequences to that. Or, you know, maybe by talking talk about mental health, people who hold a stereotype about mental health as a source of weakness might think, oh, maybe that person's weak because they're talking about mental health struggles. But that's okay. You know, I think the more we talk about these issues openly, the more we realize, hey, this is a common struggle uh, and one that should unite us, uh, not one that should cause us to look at each other with judgment. You know, one thing I, I wanted to ask you about is, you, you know, you don't come across as a naturally gregarious, extroverted individual. I mean, you, you have this inner strength and, like I said, this this sort of extreme eloquence. But I was just wondering, you know, where in the course of your development did you learn to assert yourself and, and to step forward? I mean, you eventually, you know, by when you're in residency and then at the Brigham, you know, you're working Doctors for America, you're, 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 you're asserting your leadership. When I saw you, you know, in the hearings in the Senate, you know, it was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, you, every single question, you know, you were able to, to answer authoritatively, clearly, calmly, 
you know, in a way that I think, you know, it was hard not to see others rally around, even, even though there were politics at the moment, you know, that were surrounding the confirmation hearings. But, but as you think about your development, because many people may be thinking about themselves, you know, you, you learn to step forward. How, how did you find that voice? I mean, where did you, where was the turning point for you to be able to say, I can do this? Gosh, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, that's so kind of you to say those words about the hearing in particular. But, you know, Harlan, for, for me, I, I grew up really shy and very introverted. I'm still an introvert. You know, I think that probably will be for, for my life. Um, it's not to say I don't enjoy time with people. I typically do in small groups. But I had this experience when I was young, when I was actually in college. My sister and I, when we started college, and we were young. I was 17. She was 18. We didn't know what we were doing. But we ended up starting a nonprofit organization focused on HIV. And that, and there's a whole like funny story to how that happened. But one of the things that involved us doing is training young people uh, to actually be peer educators. And we, they were building these programs in India, a place where there was a, a growing HIV epidemic at the time in the early mid-90s. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of action being taken, or at least we didn't feel sufficient action. So we thought young people could be a real force for public education and prevention. We wanted to mobilize that whole sector. So I very distinctly remember being at this school in Bangalore uh, in the summer of 1995 and speaking to a, uh, at a school to an audience of a few hundred students and talking to them about how important it was that we built this movement of students who believed in their capacity uh, to address the HIV crisis and to ultimately support and save their communities. And in that moment, I felt something that I had not really felt before, which is I felt this incredible sense of connection to them. I felt like this energy kind of flowing into my body and like rising up my spine. Um, I felt I was doing what I was meant to do in the world. And I spent years, Harlan, chasing that feeling. The times when Howie, you and I would sit down and I was lost and trying to figure out what to do with my life, I was chasing that feeling where I was not only feeling like I knew what I wanted to do, but where I was deeply connected to a group of people that I wanted to serve. And that, Harlan, is what gave me strength and confidence and inspiration because I realized that when I was truly inspired by something, I felt bold. I felt like I felt uh, like my vision would expand. I felt like I could take risk and try to create and build something. And I felt like I became an entrepreneur, like in those moments where I was inspired. But it was very hard for me to do when I wasn't inspired, uh, which is why like, I spent so much time searching and looking at different ideas, but, but not necessarily moving on a bunch of things because I wasn't quite feeling inspired. It was even true when we created uh, Doctors for America, the advocacy organization that you know I, I worked on uh, for years. That also came from a moment of inspiration. I, it, was, it didn't make any sense for me to actually work on it at the time. I was building a technology company, Trial Networks. I was doing clinical work. I was teaching. I was actually feeling stretched thin. And funnily enough, I was trying to think about how to cut down on something. But then I had this moment where I was sitting in this meeting during where all of these health policies were being discussed uh, during a critical presidential election. And I realized that there was nobody around the table who had direct experience with healthcare. And it struck me that our colleagues in medicine who are on the front lines needed to have more of a voice in shaping what our healthcare system looked like. And I wanted to see if we could build a movement around that. And I felt the same sense of inspiration there that I did when I was 17 years old, standing before 
a group of students in Bangalore, in India. And so that's why I knew I had to do it. And when I when I knew that, then it was so much easier for me to speak with clarity and conviction, and to you know to to try to bring other people into the broader movement that we we're building. And that's how I think about our work here too. You know, like there are many priorities we could work on in the office. There are many worthy public health issues that deserve more attention. But I try to think about the combination of what is deeply needed, what are the areas where our office could actually have a unique role in actually helping to move the, the, the needle on progress, and where am I also deeply inspired by an issue. And the reason we've chosen mental health and well-being is I feel like this is so key to unlocking human potential and to leading uh, uh, people down a path to greater fulfillment and well-being. And, and that's what I want for all of us is at the end of the day, you know, how I want us to be able to, at the end of the day, look back and say, we led lives that were fulfilling, that were meaningful, where we were deeply connected to others, uh, where we could do the things that brought us joy. Uh, and that, that's what keeps me going. I, I've, I've been witness to total strangers walking up to you and thanking you for the work you've done on behalf of people they know, uh, recognizing that you're uh, shining a light and bringing truth to mental illness, mental well-being, uh, loneliness, and so on is so impactful. So I want to thank you for, for joining us today, but I do want to ask you one quick final question. And that is Dawn Sherling tells me that we're allowed to have snacks every so often, or at least she said something <laughs> like that, Harlan. I'm curious to know, New Haven, two quick questions. What's your favorite pizza and what's your favorite snack in New Haven? Oh, my gosh. Well, that is an easy question, Howie, because my, uh, my favorite pizza is the garlic mashed potato uh, pizza with sun-dried tomatoes on top from Bar Pizza. Not from Good the choice. other pizza shops, from Bar Pizza. Good uh, choice. And and for all those out there listening who might think, how can you have mashed potato on a pizza? Everyone I've bought to try that pizza has been a convert. So please come to New Haven and try it. Harlan and I have had that. Yes, I know you both know this well. <laughs> uh, this favorite snack, I would say it's got to be Claire's Lithuanian coffee cake. It's just so good. Every time I come to New Haven, I try to take a piece and bring it back home for my wife, who's a Yaley also, who graduated from yes. Yale College. Um, but th those would be my picks. Great. Well, how wonderful to have you on. It's great to see you continue your great work. And, uh, you know, you're, it's just uh, we're very proud to see what you've done. And uh, it's so meaningful for us to have this with time. with uh, you. Thanks Thank you so much. much. No, I, I really Thank enjoyed you. this, too. Thank you for giving me the chance to be on, the, uh, on with you and for um, just being two fantastic role models and mentors for me as Thank I've you. grown up. I really appreciate you both. Thanks to all of you for joining this very special episode of Health and Veritas. We're now going to be on hiatus until September 7th, but you can go back and listen to our 91 prior episodes, all available at your favorite podcast platform, including Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks very much for the Health and Veritas team.